Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton, and this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Of course, Haley, this week it is Budget Week in Ottawa. We are talking all about this throughout the radio show. Lots to break down from mm-hmm. housing to taxes to, I think, just affordable care for children and, and paternity leave. So much going on here. And we've got an expert on the show. It's Reese Kesselman. He's a professor at Simon Fraser University's School of Public Policy. He's also the Canada Research Chair in Public Finance. We dive deep into everything going on with the federal budget up next on the radio show interview here. Listen in. Welcome back to Roundhouse Radio 98.3. You're listening to Business in Vancouver with a daily business program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Ottawa just unveiled its latest budget. Kirk, I would not call this a particularly splashy one, would you? No, it's uh, it's at a, a part of the economic and political cycle that doesn't require a lot of urgency on the part of the government, it seems. Next year, I'm sure, will be very exciting. Yeah. But well, uh, with us, a, there's still, an election. Yeah. <laughs> still some very interesting things going on. And with us to break it all down is Reese Kesselman. He's a professor emeritus at Simon Fraser University's School of Public Policy, and he's also the Canada Research Chair in Public Finance. Reese, thank you for joining us on the show today. Glad to do so. So I think one of the big things people are paying attention to, though, is changes to parental leave. We're getting five weeks benefit for fathers and same-sex partners. Is this going to be enough to uh, for people to sink their teeth into it and look at the changes that we're trying to get going here, especially with regards to more gender parity, get more women back into the workforce quicker? Uh, experience elsewhere. I mean, some of this is done in Scandinavian countries, that is additional parental leave, but on a use it or lose it basis for the father um, does suggest that it has positive effect. I think in Quebec as well, uh, we're we're seeing positive results from this kind of approach. This was, uh, in a lot of ways, a bit of a values-based budget, uh, an ability in the liberal government to assert issues around uh, reconciliation and equality in that regard. And yet it, it didn't, um, didn't push very far ahead on things like national childcare or large, uh, large issues of health and uh, like pharmacare. It's only getting going on that. It, is this what we can kind of expect in, say, the third year of a mandate, Reese, where governments are not under any real urgency to, to do something to convince the electorate that they're long for the game? Uh, I think that's right. In part, they've got a lot of big spending things already in the works from uh, campaign commitments and their first couple of budgets. And, um, of course, it tends to be the the next budget, pre-election, where flashier, bigger things get put on the table. One of the things that I think a lot of people within businesses have been looking out for, though, would be corporate tax cuts, because of course, we had the United States introduce their reforms back in December. How is Canada going to stay competitive? And what the finance minister is telling journalists in the lockup was, well, Canada already has competitive tax rates for corporations. Are we, you know, still going to be maintaining our competitiveness with the United States? Should there have been some changes introduced in this latest budget? Gee, on uh, the tax front for corporations, what are they doing? They're clarifying and actually making a little less restrictive their provisions for the small corporations, the Canadian-controlled private corporations with respect to uh, 
passive income, um, no real mention of any significant move on the general corporate tax rate, which affects the uh, larger corporations. Uh, will Canada have to respond? Um, gee, there's a good deal of revenue that uh, <laughs> would be affected if they simply slash the rate. The rate already is down quite substantially over the past decade. Um, I think some of the proposals made by, by some of the think tanks would be to uh, make uh, right, fast write-offs of capital investments uh, faster, which mm -hmm. would parallel some of the U.S. changes. Um, I guess we'll, we'll have to see how this plays out in terms of business attitudes toward investing in Canada versus uh, the U.S. with those changes. I, I, I don't think there's any final word on that. We've talked on this program numerous times about uh, last July's surprise to small businesses to incorporate businesses from Bill Morneau. Did he uh, did he effectively put this in the rearview mirror today? Do you think with the budget? Well, I think he he did settle definitively what they're doing with the so-called passive income. This is investment income within the small um, CCPCs, Canadian Controlled Private Corporations. Um, there will be limits on how much of this passive income can be effectively sheltered within those, uh, often their family corporations, without losing the uh, the small business corporate rate. So that that at least has been addressed, and and other aspects of what they announced, I think were were settled last year, and there may be some bits that they've just let let go. <laughs> So, um, and, and these are affecting only, the, the, the things in the budget today are affecting only 2 or 3% of all of these, uh, we call them small corporations, but some of them are actually quite wealthy families. 80% of the impact will be on owners who are quite well off in the top 1% of the income distribution. Certainly wasn't something that went over well politically when it was introduced over the summer. And so it is interesting to see them try to, I guess, square some of the uh, the, the round pegs here. But uh, one of the things that we've also been talking about quite a bit, especially after we saw the provincial budget come out this month, was housing. And the federal government here, they're saying, well, we'll put in $114 million over five years to increase rental housing construction. Is this going to be a significant, put a significant mark in what I guess the needs are throughout many parts of Canada right now, Reese? Uh, this is a bottomless pit. Uh, the, the figure involved and the time period involved don't make it look uh, terribly large, uh, but um, this is not the first um, initiative by the federal government in terms of funding in direct and indirect ways to try to stimulate uh, more affordable housing. So it's you know it's not a a, a big item, but challenge uh, for the provinces and municipalities too to to deal with this in any any uh, very substantial way because of the the, the sure cost and. And, and the rising uh, pressures on, on rents as well as uh, purchase yeah. housing prices. 
Reese Kesselman is our guest. He's a professor at Simon Fraser University School of Public Policy. He's the Canada Research Chair in Public Finance. We're talking about today's federal budget tabled by Bill Morneau. Uh, if if you take a look at um, the projections for deficits, uh, they extend and extend and extend. Uh, clearly, the Trudeau government had talked about uh, getting rid of the deficit or balancing the budget by 2019 when it was campaigning a couple of years ago. That's now quite a ways off on the horizon. Um, is that a troubling sign or, or is that a manageable issue? Well, um, first, we can compare it with other countries, uh, U.S. being a, a real basket case, if, <laughs> if we're looking at that issue. Um, uh, Canada's ability to manage debt and growing debt uh, like any country, is in relation to the size of its economy. So normally we look at the so-called debt-to-GDP, uh, that is debt to the size of the economy, and the commitment, uh, the, the re- revised commitment of the federal liberals is to keep that ratio on a slowly downward course. Um, One might say, ideally, we should not be running deficits of that size, even though they're not, even in relative terms, they're not massive the way they are in the U.S. and certainly Japan and various other countries, that at this stage of the business cycle, they should not be that large. Maybe they should be even uh, minimal, Uh, but... It does look manageable. The the sort of ointment in or fly in the ointment is uh, when is this uh, buoyant part of the business cycle going to end? When's our next recession? There will be one. Is it a year off? Is it three or four years off? This has been a very long period, albeit a slow recovery, but a recovery period. So um, I'm not worried about it in terms of the, the general situation, but. Uh, we could be doing better, but that would mean either uh, hike some tax rates or trim some of the spending initiatives. Yeah, they did indicate today that uh, some of the infrastructure initiatives are moving more slowly than anticipated, so they pushed off some of the spending there. We could be facing a NAFTA that gets torn up. Uh, we might be facing, as you put it, a, a real economic slowdown. Uh, we're, we're due in a lot of ways in in North America for a recession. Uh, we've had eight or nine years of, uh, of, of growth. Um, is, is the spending coming at the wrong time? Uh, quite possibly. Um, if we are a center on this, uh, the United States is really, <laughs> they've, is they've already really down below they've, the earth. If you want to say they're, they're in yeah, hell, they, yeah, yeah. they are, they are really, uh, federally, um, you know, where, where are their brains? Well, you know, yeah. politics are politics, but very, very uh, uh, bad timing on both, you know, the combination of tax cuts and, um, you know, high spending. One of the things that did catch my attention here is this Canada worker benefits. It's aimed, of course, at low-income workers, supplementing income through tax credits. So we're thinking maybe minimum wage workers in this situation. Of course, Ontario they had their raise of minimum wage just last month, and we know in British Columbia we're eventually going to get that up to $15 in the coming years. Is this Canada worker benefit, is it going to accomplish what it sets out to do here? Is that going to be negated a little bit by the fact that we are seeing uh, some of the larger provinces make big pushes towards raise 
raising the minimum wage? Uh, this Canada Workers Benefit is mainly a renaming of the uh, work, working income tax benefit that's been around for several years and a very modest enrichment of, of the maximum benefit and and how it phases out at, at earnings, uh, you know, in the fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollar per year range. So it, yes, it 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 will uh, augment the take-home pay or the the take-home income of uh, lower and minimum wage workers who will also be benefiting from minimum wage increases. So. Again, it's not a big headline story because, it, apart from the renaming of it, it's not a quite large, not a very large uh, increase. Well, Reese, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Okay, that's my pleasure. Thank you. That's Reese Kesselman. He's a professor emeritus at Simon Fraser University's School of Public Policy, and he's the Canada Research Chair in Public Finance. And you're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Kirk LaPointe. And of course, that was Reese Kesselman, professor at Simon Fraser University's School of Public Policy, and he's also the Canada Research Chair in Public Finance. And this podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax, and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, Give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600. That's 604-714-3600. Or else check them out on their website at manningelliott.ca. Haley, who else did we speak to this week on the radio show? We had the chance to speak to Caton Capadia. He's Vice President of Identity and Access Management at the Herjavec Group. He was in Vancouver this week to talk all about cybersecurity, which should always be top of mind for businesses. But this week with the news that certain Tim Hortons locations yeah. were disrupted by malware, it's another breach. It didn't stop in 2018. Instead of getting that uh, Boston cream, I ended up with uh, like a raspberry muffin. And who wants that? (laughs) Nobody wants that. Terrible, terrible. Anyway, we had the chance to speak to Kate and all about what businesses should be keeping in mind and what strategies they can maybe implement to make sure that their data and their employees' identities are safe. Have a listen. Welcome back to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We are the daily business news program from our weekly Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. Katen Capadia is the Vice President of Identity and Access Management at the Herjavec Group, and he's in Vancouver Tuesday speaking at the Terminal City Club about some of the biggest risks facing businesses in the realm of cybersecurity. Katen, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you. So when you think about everything that's going on, I, I I always wonder, like, how do people start to kind of get a handle on what their priorities should be? Because there's so much coming at you when it comes to cybersecurity. Is there any advice you have for people just trying to figure out what they should do or what they should at least prioritize when it comes to these concerns? So I think in general, I think it goes back to the, you know, the whole concept of security hygiene, right? So, you know, if you look at people or organizations in general, right, um, you know, obviously, uh, traditionally organizations have looked at, you know, how do we, you know, how do we measure and control our, you know, security hygiene? And really, the the goal there is, um, you know, organizations will use firewalls, intrusion 
detection systems and all kinds of other solutions to be, you know, to ensure that uh, their perimeter is secure. But, you know, what we're seeing, you know, with with the experience and talking to our customers out there is that, uh, you know, identity is sort of the key epicenter when it comes to dealing with cybersecurity, because at the end of the day, you know, it all starts with the person who you are, what ac- what access you have, and then what you can do with that access, right? So ultimately, uh, to help drive, you know, anything around cybersecurity, uh, you know, I think organizations need to really go back and say, okay, well, how do we ensure that the person we've onboarded, you know, do they have the right access at the right time and at the right place to really control um, access, which in turn helps, you know, drive the whole uh, security posture for the organization. Yeah, that question about identity, I mean, are we seeing ideas out there, solutions out there that make a whole lot more sense now than what the technology would have allowed us just a few short years ago? Definitely. So I think, look, identity has been around since late 1990s and a lot of vendors in the early 2000s have come up with lots of solutions. But I think in the last four or five years, I think um, identity is becoming a board conversation now, right? Because if you look at the security breaches, you know, over the last four or five years, a lot of them have sort of gone back to uh, people having, you know, basically access that they shouldn't have access to, right? Just last week, you know, an incident that occurred in India from the Punjab National Bank, for example, right? Uh, The, you know, the uh, movement of money was basically an insider job where a person had the access to basically transfer the large amount of sum uh, of amount, you know, and and basically it's, it's issues like that, that, you know, need to be put in place and controls need to be put in place to ensure that, you know, right people have the right access. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me because so much of our identities are online. The data's digital. It's there and hopefully well protected, but it's there. And at the same time, you also see examples of, say, where our identities can help us, like biometric data, your fingerprints, scans of your eyes, your unique identity can actually help you in protecting your information. How quickly are you seeing firms adopt, say, biometric security systems, ways where it's a a single person's identity is sort of the way they protect data or access? Right. So again, I think protecting identity is a very complex challenge and and, and also a, a very complex problem to deal with. Right. So I think, um, you know, if you look at uh, biometric type devices, where you know, you know, obviously, if if you, if you, if you, you know, for example, if you go through the airport or if you use Nexus, it's just a combination of your, you know biometrics from an eye retina scanning. Obviously, technologies like that do work, but, you know, they're not easy to deploy and they're also pretty expensive to deploy. It. And and at, at, at the end of the day, you are still dealing with a centralized system, which if that system got compromised somehow, now you have this information available, uh, you know, in, in the inappropriate hands. And it's not that you can go back and change your uh, you know, I to change the, you know, 
the orientation from a scanning perspective, right? So once it's out there, it's just out there. So I think, you know, yes, we have a lot of technologies. We have a lot of tools out there that help drive the effectiveness of, you know, sort of securing the identity. Uh, but, but I think, um, you know, I think organizations need to go back and at least start implementing some of the basics rather than moving to really the high caliber type solutions to start leveraging biometrics. I think I think we are seeing a combination of those things and there there are a lot of vendors out there who now support the biometric and obviously, you know, with end users who are, you know, using mobile phones with face recognition, you know, uh, thumbprint recognition type technology. I think a lot of those things are, are sort of built in for, uh, from a security perspective, but, but I think it's beyond more than that. I think ultimately there's that education that still needs to happen at the end of the day as to, you know, if something gets compromised, how do I ensure as an individual, how do I ensure as an organization that, you know, that I am doing things the right way, right? Because all what it takes is one simple, you know, email that lands in my inbox and by me clicking on that link through that phishing email, it can basically, you know, start a series of events that I as the end user would not even know that those events occurred and somehow I now have a malware, spyware or a ransomware sitting on my desktop or or, or the appropriate device. Our guest today is Caton Capadia. He's Vice President of Identity and Access Management at the Herjavec Group. He is speaking in Vancouver on Tuesday at the Terminal City Club. And I think the question a lot of companies have is how well positioned they are to institute a lot of these cybersecurity changes. If you look at a small business, they may see that the costs of introducing a lot of these measures would be prohibitively expensive. Other larger companies, while they are less agile, so it may be more difficult for these kind of institutions, more of these lumbering giants to institute this sort of stuff. What is your position? Like who is best positioned and why should be uh, why should they be by prioritizing these things here? So whether the organization is big or small, I think at the end of the day, you know, I think managing and controlling the identity, you know, of the users is is, is a key element, right? Because ultimately, um, you know, these people are going to have access to the crown jewels within your organization. You want to ensure that, you know, when these people have access to the crown jewels, they have the right access and, and they're able to do things effectively. And as an organization, you can go back and kind of look at to see from an audit perspective to see what was done to ensure that you have the compliance and governance in place. Um, and, and, you know, to answer your question, uh, Tyler, I think, yeah, I think uh, I think many of the larger organizations do have capabilities and possibly the also funding available. But, you know, I think a, a lot of the vendors today, you know, as this is a critical problem for every organization, small to mid to large corporations. I think this is a fundamental challenge. And I think there are are a lot of vendors out there who help support even the smaller organizations who may not have the large scale budget that the organizations may have. And, you know, and and I think, and, and I think ultimately it's also ensuring that you internally have the right processes and, and, and procedures in place because I think, you know, very often when we talk to customers, you know, r- regardless of the shape or, or size they are or the funding available, I think a lot of it sort of goes back to, you know, 
what program do you have defined? Do you have, you know, the appropriate use cases in place? Do you have the proper policies and governance in place to help you drive those things? Because ultimately, it's not about the, it's not all about the technology when it comes to managing the identity, but it's sort of the supporting processes to ensure that if you can have those things well documented, well audited, even manually, then you as an organization are going to be one step forward to the other organizations. Keaton, what can a business do to try and mitigate the impact of a breach at another business, a supplier, a server, whatever it may be? We're so connected, right? So it might be somebody else who suffers a breach or some sort of scam or fraud but it ultimately affects you, affects you as an individual or business. So what safeguards can you put in place? So I think you as the end user, um, you know, obviously, you know, I think whenever you try to sign up for any type of services, you, you definitely want to ensure that you are kind of understanding the relationship you are getting into and sort of the data that they are sh- sharing about you as an, end, and as, as an end user, right? Because I think, and I think that's kind of the fundamental challenges we see in sort of in the consumer space today is, you know, everybody signs up for all, all different types of accounts, but then you, you don't necessarily know how that data is exposed about you mm-hmm. or how is that data used about you behind the scenes, right? So I think, I think understanding those elements are, are definitely critical and I think this is where I think the end user education you know sort of in the just basics cyber hygiene definitely helps now putting that from a perspective of an organization who's, who's, who's providing these type of services I think for for them it, it is very critical to ensure that you know that all the customer data is safeguarded and obviously you know they are using the right tools technologies uh, to ensure that the data is encrypted and only the right eyes can sort of see the right information uh, to ensure that uh, they are following, you know, the best practices and, and sort of the standards adhered to by, you know, the, you know, by the local government or by the federal government or any of the compliance or regulatory needs that they need to as an organization. Well, Caton, very important issue that I think a lot of businesses are still trying to grapple with. And I appreciate you very much lending your expertise to us on the program today. Not a problem, Tyler. Thank you. That's Caton Capadia, Vice President of Identity and Access Management at the Herjavec Group. And you're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. That was Caton Capadia. He is Vice President of Identity and Access Management at the Herjavec Group. A lot of interesting things to note there about cybersecurity. It was a major story last year, and we know it'll continue to be one this year as well. I, I think the last time it was not a major story was it must have been in the <laughs> 70s when people are still using like an abacus to yeah, do before, a lot of their computing. Yeah, before the internet. Bef- yeah. Pre-internet, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for listening to the BIV podcast. If you want more podcasts and more radio clips, more business news, head on over to BIV.com. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. And Tyler, if people want to connect with you, where can they go? You can find me at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. And you can also find my stories and your stories too, Haley, at our brand spanking new website. Mm-hmm. That's at BIV.com. What about you? Social media, how do we track you down there? I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Haley Wooden. Feel free to say hi there. And once again, thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. We'll be back tomorrow.